there's always a few that want to miss the introduction, so that's why they, they come a bit later. <laughs> um, okay, I think we can go. Um, we're delighted to welcome back Rabbi Yonatan Alevi from San Diego. Um, he's the rabbi of Shar Shamayim Kehila, founder of the Shiviti community. Um, they do amazing work. I encourage you to follow them on, on all social media. They have really great outputs of the top quality. Um, and today we're going to be carrying on on the part two of Kibal Nuharat Maran, the acceptance of the rulings of Yosef Karo. And I, I think we'll be focusing on the reactions to the Shukhan Aruch. And for those who couldn't make it last time, um, I, I strongly encourage you to listen to part one. Um, and I think for those with sort of burning questions, I'm sure the Rav will take some today, but also bear in mind that you know, there is part three, so some aspects will, keep, will be covered then. So, uh, I mean, it's such an expansive topic that, as you can see in the, from the source sheets that I think we'll share or, or the Rav will go through, um, you know, you kind of really need a long series just for this topic. But, you know, Rav, I think um, it's up to you which questions you want to address today and, and which, you know, you think can wait and you're going to cover in the next, next class. Um, but um, up to your discretion. Anyways. Uh, very excited for this. Um, really set it up with the, with the first part, and I think it's going to be great. Um, so, bechavod, Rav, all yours. Thank you so much, Erev Tov. Good evening to everybody from wherever in the world you are. Uh, especially, I want to thank uh, Avi and Sina for creating this space where people can come together and learn Torah. And obviously, Berosham standing at their head is uh, our Rabbi Rabbi Dweck. Uh, Hashem should give him a long life and much health, Bezat Hashem. Let me give you a little bit of an understanding of where we were last week, last time, where we're going to be today, and what we'll be doing next time, and you'll be able to understand the questions that way. Avi was mentioning that there will be much to be covered, and uh, I'll, I'll tell you, last time we discussed mostly the acceptance of Maran the Shulchan Aruch. So all of the sources that discussed, we accepted the rulings of Maran, mostly in Sephardic country, countries and in that context. Uh, today's shiur is going to be all about reactions to Maran, uh, that vary in terms of how much they accepted or didn't accept, and uh, some more reactions from contemporaries and then later generations, uh, both in Ashkenaz and Sepharad and also in Yemen. Uh, and then next time we learn together for the final installment of this particular series, we'll be discussing in the world of all those who claim to follow Maran, the thousand and one exceptions to the times in which they really follow Maran. And so how much could we fully have accepted Maran if there are all these exceptions to Maran? Exceptions to Maran will be God willing for next time. So any questions that come up in that department, let's leave that for the next year, but anything else is fair game. A fair note as well is that I'm happy to stay here. For me, it's 12.30 in the afternoon. So I'm happy to stay here as late as anybody has any questions after the shoe. Uh, you're welcome to interrupt me in the middle. This is, uh, I mentioned last time, uh, if you wait for me to stop talking, I will never stop talking. So just feel free to unmute yourself and ask a question in the middle if you need to. Uh, but if it's something that's uh, more of a tangent, let's leave that for the end and I will stay here uh, for as long as I possibly uh, need to to be able to answer all of your questions properly. Uh, and a last note, I didn't mention this last time, but I, some of you are noticing this room that I'm in right now is not as fancy as what it looks like in the YouTube videos. 
you have to thank the world of uh, computer, uh, computers and technology. Uh, we're now in a temporary COVID space. So it's a huge warehouse that we took for the Bet Knesset that's been closed anyways for the last two months. But you're seeing all this exposed roofing and pipes and everything on the walls. Uh, that's because behind me is a makeshift Awana Kodesh, but Itzhak Lopez on our editing team does a terrific job at cropping everything out and leaving just here. So forgive me that I'm hosting you in a temporary place, but this is better than not being able to be here at all. I was once in a gas station in Israel, filling up my car with gasoline. And I was with my father, I don't know, maybe it was his car, we were filling up with gasoline. And I don't know if you're familiar with Israeli gas stations, but you know, Jews try to sell you things everywhere you go. And normally in every Israeli gas station, there are all these things they sell you by the gas station pump itself. All kinds, of, every time it's something new. Sometimes it's water bottles, sometimes it's iPhones, who knows, whatever fell off the truck that week is what they're selling over there. Uh, so we were filling up at the pump, and I was, I was a Bahu Shiva, I had a small apartment, and they were selling this, I remember, it's a, it was a microwave, coffee maker, toaster, with an electronic skillet on top. It was a four-in-one package. And I told my father, that's amazing, I could save all these appliances, I'm going to get one of these, I'm going to put it in my dorm room. And my father told me, he says, Yonatan, just remember that Anything that doesn't know what it is is never going to get the job done right. If you want a microwave, buy a microwave. If you want a toaster, buy a toaster. But if you have an appliance who thinks it's a microwave and a toaster and a coffee machine and a skillet, most likely it will not do any of those perfectly. And this, this is a mashal for today's shul. Essentially, we're trying to record reactions to Marana Shulchan Aruch, not just across generations, but across different countries, different mindsets, different mentalities. And the truth is that if the next booking for Shi'ul wasn't in June, if the next booking for the Shi'ul wasn't in June, uh, someone asked about recording, we're recording on a different camera and I will get you this recording afterwards, but let's, let's, let's be safe and record twice, why not? We have one more Shi'ul to discuss everything I would like to discuss, and so today I took the liberty of trying to put all of this into one one singular shiur, and that is going to be reactions to Maran among his contemporaries, and some negative reactions in the world of Svaran, reactions to Maran and Ashkenaz, and how he became accepted in Ashkenaz or didn't, and then ultimately the reaction to Maran in Yemen, which was the stronghold of those who followed the Rambam, and to see exactly how they reacted to Maran Ashukhan uh, God willing, We'll try to do our best to be a microwave, toaster, oven, skillet, coffee maker, but HaKadosh Baruch Hu will let us do what we can do in the time that we have together. Bezalat Hashem A source from last week's source sheet, and if you didn't get a chance to listen to the first shiul, perhaps one of the most important sources in that shiul was the one that I didn't dwell on the longest because it was in English. And that was the introduction of Chacham Fa'u to the concept of why we need a central legal code in the first place. If you can look back at the first source sheet, I would recommend, even while I'm talking, to catch up on that, that short entry. But here's something I copied from last time's source sheet as well. Source number one on page one. The source sheet can be found in a PDF that I sent out or at the website that uh, I saw one of you post in the comments below, uh, shiviti.org forward slash chabua. The Chida who was a Moroccan rabbi born in 1724, passed away in 1806, uh, born in, uh, uh, passed away in Livorno. The Chida writes, In that generation of Maran, 
There were three rabbis who were worthy of being the Maran of the generation. Rabbi Yosef Taitatzak is one of the famous Chachamim of that generation. In fact, recently I got my hands on books of one of his students, Rabbi Moshe Musnino, who was one of the, the brilliant Chachamim of that, of that world. Varav Maran, so that's Maran Rabbi Yosef Karo. Varav Maribal. Maribal is Mari ben Lev. That's source number three. Every one of them was worthy in their own right of composing a central code of halakha for the whole Jewish people. Here you begin to see this conversation among not only Sephardic Chachamim, that somehow there was a divine intervention. And then Maran was chosen from by Shamaim for the special task of writing a Shulchan Aruch. We did this last time, but it feeds into the next source, which is very important for us tonight. And that is the reactions to Maran Shulchan Aruch in the generation of Maran himself. You have here a story brought down in the same book, the Chida Hashem Gedonim. This book, Hashem uh, Gedonim, is an encyclopedia of different uh, rabbis and books that the Chida collected over his time traveling through different libraries. He, he put together essentially an encyclopedia. One half of it names of rabbis, one half of it names of books. And you can look up pretty much any Talmud Chacham who lived until the times of the Chida. Anything you want to know about them or the Chida's perspective on them is found in this book. For those of you who are in my class on Rabbanit Farah Hasasun, uh, you'll recall that I sp- mentioned there, uh, there's even an entry on Rabbaniyot, some 36 Rabbaniyot that the Chida considers to be uh, noteworthy in their contributions to Halakha, to understanding of Talmud. Uh, God willing, we'll add in this generation many more entries of Talmidot Chachamot that will uh, increase Torah among the world, and we can put them in encyclopedias as well. Says the Chida, Shamati, I heard a story. That when Maran's Bet Yosef was published, Amar Harav Maharibal. Rabbi Yosef ben Lev, who was born in 1505 in Monastir, which is in the region of Macedonia today. He passed away in 1580 in Istanbul. So he was about 75 years old and spent most of his life in Saloniki, in Greece. So I heard about the Maribal, that he felt that the book Bet Yosef, because it was a cheat sheet of sorts, it collected all the sources for you, it quoted the Mishnah and the Talmud for you, it quoted all of the Rishonim for you, that it was essentially a shortcut book that was ruining the proper study of Torah in the Yeshivot. And he decreed on the students of his Yeshiva that you shall not study from the book Bet Yosef. So here you have a Sephardic rabbi in Greece who decides that in his Sephardic yeshiva, it is forbidden to study the writings of Maran. Yom echad amdu din. One day they were studying halakha. Vaharav and the rabbi, who was the maribal. The rabbi, tarach velo he was looking for a halakha in his books and he couldn't find the right halakha. Nira min hashamayim rotsim shosever bet yosef itabashet ba'onam. So it seems that HaKadosh Baruch Hu wanted from heaven, again, you're bringing in this concept of from heaven, HaKadosh Baruch Hu wanted the book of the Bet Yosef to be accepted. Lechu chazu, go look in the Bet Yosef. Uvotcham, and when they opened up the Bet Yosef, matzu ayem mekom hadin bashas, vehitir lahem hagezera. That Maran had showed them the right place for this halakha and the shas, and it solved the problems. Essentially you find here, says the Chida, divine intervention on behalf of Maran. 
to convince the students of the yeshiva, of the Maribal, to accept the writings of Maran. But it's not so simple. It's not so simple. Because this story is clearly born into a context where we know the Maribal is one of the opponents of Maran HaShulchan Aruch, at least in the sense that he feels that this kind of study of Halakha is going to diminish the proper study of Torah and Yeshiva, the proper analysis of Halakha and Yeshiva, if we may. And so let's look at the writings of the Maribal himself, in source number three, in the bottom of page one. The Maribal mentions prior to Maran, and for all of those who were asking me questions last week, but how, we, how dare we replace the Rambam with Maran, I think that a source like this is going to show you that the conversation is not as simple as romanticizing the past of Sephardic Jewry. Let's look at who were the leaders of the Sephardic, at least according to the Maribal. And what I heard from the Chachamim in Saloniki, then most of the halachot of Isur Veheter, the Chachamim of Saloniki followed the Rosh, Rabbeinu Asher, who was an Ashkenazi rabbi in Spain. And for those who want to read a little more of the politics of that era, I suggested last time to study the essay Anti-Maimonidean Demons of Rabbi Faor for a different perspective on whether or not the Rosh really was the rabbi of Sefarad at that time. But here in the words of Maribal, he was the last of the Sephardic poskim. I mean, the Rosh is the final word in the, in the realm of Svarad. Nonetheless, Benidon Halaz, in this particular instance, Nahagu Al-Fasi. The custom in Sefarad was to follow uh, the Al-Fasi. Al-Fasi is the Rif, Al-Fasi. Meaning, even though they usually ruled like the Rosh, in this particular instance, they were lenient against the Rosh and followed the Rif. Rov HaPoskim Rav and, and uh, the Poskim that followed the Rif. Gambe Constantina, this is uh, Constantinople. What I saw in the writings of the Re'em, that all of those communities in Constantinople, in Morocco, they should have been stringent like the opinion of the Rosh. For which reason, why should Moroccans and why should uh, uh, those in Constantinople follow the Rosh? Because he, of blessed memory, he was the rabbi of Spain. And everybody there were his students. And apparently, they had all accepted upon themselves, so before accepting Maran, they had accepted upon themselves the rulings of the Rosh. You find here a source, not just opposing the study of the Bet Yosef, but essentially saying that all of the Svaradim that he's familiar with, he's talking here about Greece, he's talking about Constantinople, he's talking about Morocco, and then definitely Spain, that they had all accepted upon themselves the rulings of the Rosh, for he was the last of the Sephardic Poskim. We come to Maran and we start to blame him for arguing with the Mishneh Torah. We start to say, why did he have to include Ashkenazi customs if the Ashkenazim didn't even accept Shulchan Aruch in the first place? Abotai, it's a little bit of a misnomer what I told you last time. Even if Maran was not coming to unite the Sephardim with Ashkenazim, Maran at the very least was trying to unite the Sephardim. The Sephardim themselves, who are now in a place of multiple loyalties, do they follow the Rosh, the Rif, the Rambam? Notice there's not even a mention here of the Rambam. And this brings us to another conversation which others have literally written books about. There's a, an academic work right now slipping my mind all about this relationship 
between Maran and one of his contemporaries known as the Mabit. The Mabit, anyone know who the Mabit is? Have you heard of him before? But for those of you who have your cameras on, I thank you very much. So I, I love to be able to see your faces. Rabbi Moshe Mitrani was one of the giants of, of the Sephardic community in Tzfat at that time. Uh, Tzfat, as we mentioned in our last year, was the revival of the Sanhedrin, Mahari Berav, Maran Rabbi Yosef Karo. It was a center not just of Halakha, but of the Mekubalim of that generation post the expulsion from Spain. The Mabit was a classmate. Rabbi Moshe Mitrani, though he was from a tremendous rabbinic family, traces itself back to Shayad Mitrani, he himself was a classmate of Maran, and they both studied by Mahari Berav. One may argue that more than Maran was, Mabit was a greater student of Mahari Berav than Maran. There are sources that, rec- that suggest such an idea. Mahari Berav even spent more time studying from, uh, Mabit spent more time studying from Mahari Berav than Maran himself, but these were contemporaries and they were classmates. And as is understandable between classmates and contemporaries, the Mabit is not so sure why he should dismiss his halachic judgment for another rabbi who was in the same class as his. And so here you begin to see, even in Maran's generation, this concept of kibbalnu aleinu horot Maran, we've accepted upon ourselves the ruling of Maran, is not necessarily what we might want to believe that it is. I cannot go through all of these sources with you, but let me tell you a little bit about the Mabit for just a moment. He was born in 1505 in Saloniki, and he passed away in 1580 in Yerushanai, which makes him about 75 years old. And I say about when I mention rabbis' ages because the, the years, both their birth years and their passing years, are normally more or less, we don't have exact dates to be able to tell you, were they 75 or 74 or 75, so about 75 years old. Uh, he was also, like I said, he was also famously the rabbi of Moreno Harav Yom Tov Tzalon. You may see him quoted in other uh, works of Halakha. This was his rabbi. So Maran talks about the Mabit in source number four, quoted by the Mabit. So the Mabit quotes what Maran wrote to him in a letter. I asked the rabbi, Rabbi Yosef Karo, Hashem should protect him. What is his opinion on this matter? He answered me, and this is his language. And this is now a quote from Maran, as written down by the Mabit. In bold, Ashrei Hador, how praiseworthy is the generation, that you, the Mabit, Sharui Betocho, is living inside of it. That this generation should not be orphaned from you. Hashem should give you a long life. So here, Maran's attitude towards the Mabit is positive. It's a classmate. I love you. We're, we're so lucky to have you in our generation, and may this generation never be orphaned from you. And you see a similar relationship back between the Mabit and Maran in Source 5. He tells Maran, Chazak ve'amatz. He said, I'm grateful for all of these points that you sent me. You didn't leave even one stone that was overturned. Everything you, you mentioned. Meaning he considers Maran uh, to understand the halakha well. In Maran's Shailot V'Chuvot, has different names. Shut Rabbi Yosef Karo, Shut Bet Yosef. Everyone has it under a different name. On Evin Ha'ezer, on the volume of Shulchan Aruch, which discusses all about and the laws of marriage and divorce. Maran writes the following thing to the Mabit. I've been writing these letters back and forth to you 
in a back and forth fashion. I'm sending this personally to you. I'm embarrassed by your words. And I haven't shown your words to anybody else. He said, and I've sent this letter directly to you because I don't want it ever to be recorded on paper, which is exactly what happened right now. So it's recorded now on paper. Maran said, I don't want it to be recorded on paper. So nobody should hear outside that you and I have machloket between each other, that you and I argue with each other. So if the earlier relationships of Maran, we see in their writings mutual respect, we're now hearing that Maran is trying to cover up a machloket between him and the Mabit in order to protect their reputation from other people. The Mabit writes back to Maran in Source 7, he says, what can I do? What can I do that you, Maran, have understood things incorrectly? You've gone off the correct path? That brings us to source 8. He blames Maran for speaking to him disrespectfully. Harav Yosef, maybe it's a Aleph. He says, you wrote me a whole letter of complaints, Maran. And you even raised your voice at me, meaning you were angry at me, Maran. Because I'm known to be a humble person. I don't like to get involved in machlokot, so I'm going to answer you briefly. I read everything you wrote. I see that Akadosh Baruch's angel is pushing your hand in the wrong direction. And in bold he says, You asked me to forgive you for speaking to me this way. And even though in my opinion you were too dismissive of me, I forgive you. I Pray that HaKadosh Baruch Hu forgives you for the way you've spoken to me. And I hope that HaKadosh Baruch Hu will not consider it an avera for you at how bad you made me feel, Maran. These are two Sephardic rabbis arguing with each other. You can imagine the heat gets turned on a little bit. But it only gets worse from here. In Shutam Abit, Maran complains in Source 9 at the Mabit why it is that you decided to rule on halachot without coming to talk to us in the Betadin first. But here's where things get really exciting, and that is in source number 10 in Maran's book, Afkat Rochel. Remember this book, Afkat Rochel, because next time we're going to discuss whether when Sephardic community said, we accepted all the rulings of Maran, did we really accept all the rulings of Maran, or only the rulings found in the Bet Yosef and the Shulchan Aruch? What about books like Afkat Rochel? What about other text that Maran left behind, did we also accept those writings on ourselves? And that's going to be a debate, especially in North Africa, like in Morocco, where certain Chachamim are of the opinion that no, we only accepted the writings of Maran in the Shulchan Aruch, but not Maran in Afkat Rochel or other works. Look what Maran writes here in, in Source 10, in the first paragraph. He talks about his own Bedin. I mean, how was his Betadin accepted, at least in Sfat? So we can know that in Greece, his betadin necessarily wasn't accepted. Why? Because he's in the same generation. To accept someone's rulings, it takes some time for things to get places, for reputations to continue. So if in Greece, it wasn't such a big deal that Maran wasn't yet the leader of their generation, but in Sfat, it was pretty much the opposite. 
Look what Maran writes here, but the Rabbi Yosef Zarnigan today in the morning went over my source sheet and, and, and showed me that this is the correct way to read this. In our time here in Tzfat, my Bedin in this city, it's the expert Bedin for the masses. Our Bedin is the most famous, not just in quantity, but in quality of Chachamim. From any other betadin that we have heard of on the face of the earth. That we answer questions from all over the world. Man says, our betadin has the reputation of being a central halachic force in Am Yisrael. And he's complaining how other people feel that they have the right to overrule the betadin that is in Sfat. He then here writes in the second part, He said, it's hard for me, Mabi, to walk in the road that you chose us to go down. So he doesn't have patience for arguing. Because I thought that maybe you'll use my silence. And I'm not arguing with you. You'll use my silence against me. I'm going now into the world of Machlok, it says Maran, which I'm not comfortable with. It's not the realm of my expertise. I answered you, Mabit, twice, three times. And from now, if you keep writing me, he says, I don't expect me to answer you. I've already answered you too many times. He says, Mabit, aren't you embarrassed? You love to be right. You love to be victorious. How much do you love this? This is your way from when I remember you. You always think that you're right in the face of all of the other Chachamim of Am Yisrael. On top of page 2 in the left. And it's only because you desire to make yourself great in the eyes of ignoramuses that you try to show everybody how much greater you are than me. I don't want to be part of this conversation. What happens when rabbis fight? What's the consequence of rabbis who fight with each other? In our shiur on Tuesdays, we've been studying a lot about the lack of conversation between uh, traditional Jewish communities and perhaps less traditional Jewish communities and the damage that has caused in Am Yisrael. Look what he writes here in the last paragraph on page 2, in the left column. Already it has become a uh, conversation in the mouths of Ameha Haaretz of ignoramuses, they speak bad about Batei Din in general. Al Hatayat Mishpat, they consider us that we move halacha however we want. And they say, Hane Rabbanan, these rabbis, divrei Torah biadam kechomer biadi yotzer. Torah in their hands is like Play Doh in an infant's hands. El kol asher everything that they want to mold it, if they want halacha to be a certain way, if they want halacha to be that way, it'll be that way. There's no more halacha. Rabbis just do whatever they want. You hear the sentiment a lot in the world today. Where there's a rabbinic will, there's a way. This is how people feel about the Dayanin. V'nimsa Hashem Shamay Mitchalel says Maran to the Mabit. He says, Mabit, if we keep this up, we are desecrating HaKadosh Baruch Hu's name in the world. Let's skip source 11. Source 12. Maybe also source 12. Let's look in here in source... Um, Source 14. In Source 14, 
the Mabit writes the following, that Maran decided to be strict in a certain halakha and the laws of Shechita. And I, I disagree with him. V'im in the bold words, but even though I disagreed, he told all those bodkim who check the animals that they should make the animals not kosher when they see this problem. You should know that I have been silent all of these years just because of peace. Meaning I'm not arguing with Maran, even though I disagree with him, but out of peace, I want to keep the peace. In source 15, you find the Mabit attacking Maran. And in the bold words he makes a mention here, Vishtamet hamishnayot befiv. He says, Maran, you forgot the Mishnayot that you usually uh, teach yourself by heart. This, according to many, is a mockery he's making of Maran. Maran was known for pushing very hard this agenda of memorizing Mishnayot. People should know Mishnayot. And he tells Maran, Maran, even the Mishnayot, you make everybody remember, you forgot them yourselves. And that brings us to source 16. In source 16, the Mabit writes the following. Chacham Yosef, Hashem should protect him and watch him. He has nothing left to rely on. He said this while he was sleeping. Meaning, Maran was saying this out of slumber. He wasn't conscious when he was saying this. And what about his students? They are not scholarly enough to be able to answer our questions. Here Mabit is not just attacking Maran, the things that he says he's saying out of his sleep. He's now attacking the students of Maran. By the way, who are the students of Maran? From what uh, the books of history tell us, that there are at least five yeshivot and svat, all of which are headed by students of Maran. The students of Maran are the rashe yeshiva of svat. And Mabit says, I don't care. All of them are not good enough to answer the questions that I have on Maran. And then he complains about something fascinating. What bothers Mabit at this point is the worship of Maran among his students, at least the way he sees it. Nurbi Yosef Kafich, when he comes to Israel, and he notices for the first time he's forced to interact with other groups of Jews that are not Yemenite. And he expresses this tremendous pain at what he calls Pulchan Ha'adam, the worship of human beings. Rashi Yeshiva, Hasidic Rebbe's, Babas, whoever they are. Rabbi Yosef Kapach says, how can it be that people worship other human beings and they consider themselves Jewish? Here Mabit is bothered by the way in which Maran's students speak to him. He said, Shayam maspik lomar alav mi He said, one of Maran's students told me, who can come and argue with a king? If he's anyways calling Maran a king, he should call him the holy king, Hamelech HaKadosh. Not just any king. If you, now you made your rabbi king, so let's make him the holy king. There are certain groups of Jews. I got a book recently uh, passed through my hands. I don't own it. And it was about an obscure, obscure rabbi. I don't know. From Eastern Europe somewhere. You've never heard of him before. But they wrote in the title of his book, Rashka Bahag. What does Rashka Bahag mean? Rabban Shel Kol Bnei Hagola. He was the rabbi of all of the Jews around the world. We don't even know who he was. How do you sign someone's name? He was the rabbi of all the Jews in the whole world, but you don't even know who he was. He says, you're, you're calling your rabbi, we have it in this generation too, you have people, oh, this our rabbi, the prince of the generation. How could a rabbi that came from a little village in Russia now be crowned as the prince of the Jewish people? Please, a little bit of humility will take people a very long way. Mabit is struggling with this. 
You should call him already the holy king, not just a king. Even the sentence that they say that you should uh, fear your rabbi, you should be in awe of your rabbi like awe of heaven. Our rabbis, when they told us to have awe of our rabbis like the awe of heaven, it means like, not exactly like, but like in a similar fashion. There's a famous Gemara, if you recall, in which our uh, Chachamim were stuck. Every word et in the Torah comes to include something. So when it says, Kabed et avicha ve'etimecha, honor your father and mother. Et. Et doesn't have an English translation because it's not a word. It's not a word that is used outside of Hebrew. Et, what does et mean? A rabbi say, whenever you see the word et, it comes to include a similar category of people that the text is talking about, but that it didn't mention explicitly. So honor your father and mother. What does the word et come to include? Balarbot. Your older brother. I mean, this halakha comes So, comes How could we, uh, I believe it was Rabbi Shimon Hamsoni who said, I, I don't know if I, uh, how can I say it? Who else are you supposed to be in awe of like a Kadosh Bukhun? Just like I receive reward for teaching Torah, in this sentence, I'm going to receive reward for not saying anything. It's going to be idolatrous if I say anything. Until Rabbi Akiva comes and says, It comes to include Torah scholars. Says the Mabit, yes. To include Torah scholars in the category of people who you should be in awe of, but not to treat them like a Kadosh Baruch What kind of craziness is this? Is the Mabit. Let's be honest. You're allowed to call a rabbi Melech, a king. Why? Because the Talmud says, Man malke, who, are the rabbi, who are the kings? Rabbanan. Our rabbis are considered kings. The Kadosh lo yomar, but you can't use the word holy only on one rabbi we call Rabbeinu HaKadosh. That's Rabbi Yudah Nasi. That our rabbis tell us in the Talmud that he had a particular character trait which he never took, it's not relevant for now, he never put his hands beneath his belt. But to call your rabbi the holy king, so call him Melech, call him we only use that title for one being on earth, that's God, and only on the high holidays. We don't even call the rest of the year. How dare you use such a word to refer to your rabbi? He says, I have a complaint on Maran. Maran should have stopped them. When Maran sees that the students are praising him too much, Our rabbis talk about someone who's being worshipped for Avodah Zarah. It's a totally different context. You find this in a number of different midrashim. Uh, that just like the one who worships Avodah Zarah is guilty, the one who allows themselves to be worshipped is guilty too. Maran, why don't you stop your students from using this dangerous language around you? He's upset in Maran. And so here you find already in the city of Maran, where he was the Abit Adin, where he had yeshivot. Already here you find a situation where contemporaries of his, if not in Greece, telling you that, yeah, it didn't make it all the way here yet, but at least here, in Tzfat itself, you find a staunch opponent of Maran, a friend of Maran, but an opponent of Maran, in the personality of the Mabit. Let's look at source 17. Source 17 is a little bit of a halfway place between opposing Maran and accepting Maran. This book, Halachot Ketanot, is not written by Rabbi Moshe Chagiz, it's written by Rabbi Yaakov Chagiz. 
Be'akov Chagiz is the father of Rabbi Moshe Chagiz. The reason I wrote here Rabbi Moshe Chagiz is because I'm not actually quoting from the Halachot Ketanot, I'm quoting from a note of the son in his father's book. Has anyone here heard of Rabbi Yaakov Chagiz? I didn't, I didn't finish the last uh, Sephardi Chaburah PDF. I don't know if anybody wrote about him, but if you want to write about a Chacham, I highly suggest writing Rabbi Yaakov Chagiz. Yaakov Chagiz was one of the, the brilliant Sephardic minds in Israel at the time. He was born in Fez, Morocco in 1620, passed away in Kushta in 1674. He lived for 54 years. He spent most of that time in Yerushalayim, Yerakodesh, where he had a yeshiva, a very famous yeshiva. In fact, the name of the yeshiva was a little bit derogatory. They used to call it the quarantine yeshiva. Nobody ever left that yeshiva. They always stayed there. But some of the great Sephardic minds of that generation came out of that yeshiva. If I'm mistaken, maybe Rabbi Shlomo Mocho comes from the yeshiva of Rabbi Yaakov Chagiz. Rabbi Yaakov Chagiz is famous for his wars against Shabtai Tzvi. He's one of the Sephardic rabbis who when Shabtai Tzvi comes to Eretz Israel, Rabbi Yaakov Chagiz chases him all the way to the other side of the world to try to stop him. He's not successful in that. His son, Rabbi Moshe Chagiz, inherits this anti-Sabbathian attitude of fighting against uh, Shabtai Tzvi and then other people, which we'll talk about in just a moment. Rabbi Yaakov Chagiz, though, is unique and I think relevant to this specific Sephardi Chavua. Oftentimes we hear things that the world around us would like to pretend that they invented it. So, uh, religious Zionism, you'll point to a certain personality, with all due respect, like Rav Kook, and say, Rav Kook was the first religious Zionist in history. I already quoted once in Monoi Shiurim with Yosef Kapach, who says, only people who had a sickness of not going to Eretz Israel needed a medicine of Zionism. But those of us who were healthy, and whenever we had the ability, for example in Yemen, to leave to Israel, all the time we were going to Israel, moving to Israel, he said, why on earth would we need to create this concept of religious Zionism, when for us, being religious means going to Eretz Israel? This concept you hear a lot about in American Jewry, perhaps also in, in British Jewry, you hear about Torah Umada, Torah and the sciences, or Torah and Der Eretz, and it's attributed to Rav Hirsch, or Rav Soloveitchik, or whatever. So what do you do about all of our chachamim who are doctors, our chachamim who are scientists? Just last night I was reading Rabbi Avraham Zakuto. Rabbi Avraham Zakuto uh, was one of those who, who created, uh, before the, the, the Spanish Inquisition, was one of those who created the navigation devices for Christopher Columbus's ship that sailed. He was a professor in one of the universities in Spain at the time. Well, he's not Torah Umada. Torah What happened? All, all the Sephardim, everything we did is forgotten because of a few people who 20 years ago came to fix an illness that Ashkenazim had. Uh, we're required to study our own history, to know that things, especially when they're not rebellious movements, but are in their natural origins. The Sephardic movements are natural in the places they are. They don't have any of the illnesses and the diseases that modern rebellions have. Rabbi Yaakov Chagiz had a yeshiva, not just where he trained Dayanim, he trained Rabbanim, he trained people how to give Gitin. It was perhaps one of the first rabbinic academies in a modern sense of teaching rabbis to be rabbis, what's later referred to derogatorily in the ultra-Orthodox world as rabbi factories. Rabbi Yaakov Chagiz also had a very healthy regimen of secular studies in his yeshiva. According to some... Oh, I'm sorry, my camera just got cut out. Do you hear me still? Yes, okay. Um, He had, according to some testimonies in that time, even separate tracks of Talmidim who were going to study vocations. They were going to study Torah in a limited amount of time. And those who were not going to be Dayanim or Poskim would continue on in, in different avenues, living a healthy religious life as well as being educated and have skills to live in the real world. Rabbi Moshe Chagiz is born in 1672 in Yerushalayim, passed away in 1750. Rabbi Moshe Chagiz, Alam Shalom, 
is one of the main opponents of the Ramchal, Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzato. Uh, he considers the Ramchal to be a Sabbathian, persecutes him for the majority of his life. He joins an Ashkenazi rabbi, Rabbi Yaakov Imdin, in this war against the Ramchal. Uh, in fact, there's a book I have here, Igrot Ramchal, Letters of the Ramchal. In here, there are many letters between the Ramchal and his rabbis, Rabbi Yochanan Basan, Ramchal and his students, Ramchal and the Batidin in Frankfurt who end up burning his books. Uh, and the Ramchal won't even refer to Rabbi Moshe Chagiz by name. He just calls him Chagiz Hazir. This Chagiz, he persecutes him from one side of the world to the other. I would say that if I had to guess, Ramchal only begins to be accepted in Eastern Europe at least when the Gaon of Vilna, uh, of Vilna uh, puts his stamp of approval on uh, Ramchal and that changed a little bit of the way he was perceived, at least in that part of the world and in that part of history. I received this in tradition from my grandfather. That's Rabbi Moshe Galanti, the first one, not the grandson. Rabbi Yaakov Chagiz has another that's not the same one. This is Maran student. He lived in the 1500s, 1600s. I don't have exact years for you. Maram Galanti, there's some troubling stories. Recently I saw on the internet they were going around copies from a book called Shifchei Ha'ari all about the writings of the stories about the Arizal. And in there, there's a terrifying story recorded by Rabbi Moshe Galanti. And uh, you, some of you maybe saw what I'm referring to. Healing a woman by putting his Brit Milah, all kinds of crazy things. And I reached out, I'm not a Kabbalist, I reached out to somebody that I know that involved in writings of Kabbalah and assured me that in the earlier texts of Shifchei Ha'ari, this story doesn't appear. Only when the book Shifchei Ha'ari is hijacked by the Sabbatheans is the story added in to give credibility to a perverse sexual movement that is part of their understanding of Kabbalah. In all of the places that you cannot go to Bet Adin and, and argue against Rambam or Maran. Most likely it's not Rashi he's talking about. Rashi is not a posek. He's talking about the Rosh. He said, these three rabbis, the Rambam, Maran, and the Rosh, are who our forefathers accepted upon themselves. We rule like them in every way. Now you obviously understand that Rambam and Maran and the Rosh are most likely not agreeing on many things. So we'll understand just a second. And every one of these rabbis, even if a thousand other rabbis argue with them, they're not nullified, not in 60 and not in 1,000. So here you see that the Maniach, Rabbi Moshe Chagiz, is mentioning to you that Maran's acceptance didn't replace the Rambam or the Rosh or any of the rabbis that Maharibal told us came first, but it came alongside them. Now there's another option, another person to look at when ruling Halakot. So it also suggests to some that this idea of having numerous three pillars to decide two or uh, the majority between the three, it's not Maran's invention. The concept is not necessarily Maran's invention. But such ideas were, were prominent in other Sephardic communities around the world that there were certain chachamim that were and on them people ruled. And whether that approach is correct or not, I didn't come to answer, rather just to share. And he mentions that Geonet Tzfat and Ira Kodesh, uh, they all came back and they again fortified this ruling that the Rambam and Maran and the Rosh are their rabbis. And he then goes on a tangent at the end against all rabbis who feel that they have the authority to rule against any of these chachamim. He said these rabbis, unless they have tremendous sources to prove themselves right in opposition to these great chachamim, they have a terrible consequence waiting for them after 120 years.
In this first part of the shiul, I wish to show you a little bit about the understanding of how Maran's Torah spread and didn't spread throughout Sephardic communities. And you see from opposition to acceptance, which we discussed in the last class, to here, some kind of middle ground of Maran is another opinion that we take into consideration, but not the ultimate opinion. So this is unlike all of the sources that I quoted for you last time. I wish to touch on Maran's relationship to the Ramah for just a moment. I've discussed this at length. I wrote a chapter about it in my book. I have Shulim about it on the internet. I don't want to drag this out too long because I really hope today to be able to talk with you a little bit about the Jews of Yemen and their relationship with Maran and Shulchan Aruch. Uh, let's see how much of this we can do together. On page four, at the top of the page. So Maran publishes the Shulchan Aruch, and we know that the Ramah was working for some 10 years to write his own version of a code of Jewish law. And when Maran sees the Shulchan Aruch being printed, some say even just a few months before he was ready to publish his, you can imagine what would happen today if one rabbi printed a book, then another rabbi was working on a similar concept, so he'd go ahead and print his book and let the better man win. Maran, uh, Ramah, after putting all of his effort, all of his, anyone's right, like to write a book for 10 years? He sees that Maran Shulchan Aruch comes out, and he decides to bury his book, and instead spend the rest of his life writing a commentary on Maran Shulchan Aruch. And the reason for this is because the Ramah believes that just like Maran's mission came to unite people, the Ramah desired as much as possible to unite Sephardim and Ashkenazim into one book. And I believe that in this point, Maran, uh, the Ramah was successful. It could have been that Sephardim had a Shulchan Aruch, and Ashkenazim had a book of Ramah, and they would never meet each other anyway. Today, Baruch Hashem, in any yeshiva that you go to, in any rabbi that you speak to, a rabbi that studied something, they studied the Shulchan Aruch. It might be that they put emphasis on the Ramah, or the Shach, or the Taz, or whoever else, but the book of Halakha that is studied is the Shulchan Aruch. And therefore, the Ramah did do a great service, unlike what I quoted to you previously from Bisham Tov Gagin, who accuses the Ramah of destroying Maran's chances at uniting the people. I believe that really, if you look in the long term, that Ramah truly brought the Shulchan Aruch into a prominent place in Ashkenaz. Whether or not they follow it is a different story. has an introduction to his, he has a commentary in the Kitzur Shulchan Aruch. He said for many years he was working on an abridged version of the Ben Ishchai. And just before he was going to publish it, he said, how could he, he was writing it for school children. In the schools in Israel, they study Kitzur Shulchan Aruch, so they wanted to make, you know, Chamor Chalia was a British Chaynik, that's his thing. And he wanted to write a Kitzur for the Sephardic kids. He said, how can I do this when there's already a Kitzur Shulchan Aruch being studied? Let me write a commentary on the Kitzur Shulchan Aruch. And today, that book is very prominent in many places. Is it a, is it a, a first-hand work of Halakha? Is it a primary source? No, but it does a very good job for those studying the Kitzur Shulchan Aruch to be aware that there are other opinions that exist in the world. The Ramah writes in Darchei Moshe about Maran. So Ramah is born in 1530 in Poland, passed away in 1572. He lives for about 42 years. Uh, his rabbi is the famous Rabbi Shalom Shachna of Lublin. Uh, some of his great students are uh, Dasma, the author of the Prishao de Risha, uh, the Levushim, uh, the father of the Shla, Rabbi Shalom David Horowitz is a student of the Ramah. Not all rabbis love the Ramah in Europe. I recall a letter of one Ashkenazi Chacham to the Ramah telling him, go back to school and learn how to write Hebrew grammar properly before you write me letters in Halakha. Uh, there were some rabbis who were opponents of the Ramah, but ultimately in today's Ashkenazi world, I believe the Ramah has quite a prominent place. Says the Ramah, Ki neged hanal, my words, when argued against Maran, they're, they're, they're empty, they're nothing. What does it help for me to light a torch in the middle of broad daylight. Who needs the light of my torch when there's already a sun? 
with his knowledge that understood all of halakha, he already encompassed everything. And Hashem already blessed him with everything. There's nothing that Maran didn't know, that Maran didn't write, and because of this, says the Ramah, my introduction, even though I'm going to write notes that represent Minhagi Ashkenaz, my stance towards Maran is one of tremendous respect, that he was one of the greatest Chachamim. In the Shut Raman, the response of the Raman, letter Mem Chet, Look at how one rabbi writes to another rabbi who stole the idea for his book. Not intentionally. I came to respond out of, out of respect. I'm coming to respond to our great rabbi, Rabbi Yosef Karo. I don't have the letter that Maran wrote to the Ramah. I don't know if there is a letter. I don't know, Maran, I don't know the context of where this letter came out from. From his water we drink. We drink from his pitcher, from his jug. How can I add any kind of uh, praises to Maran? Everything that I'll praise really comes to undermine something else. Meaning he's too great to praise. Hashem should bless him in his soul and in his physical possessions. And because after you praise somebody, you should pray for them. I pray to for the future to give long life to our master and our teacher. The prince of God in our midst. This title that Ramah gives Maran. It's not just another Ashkenazi rabbi looking at Maran as another Sephardic opinion. He blessed him to merit to see the redemption. Look here at the last line. I didn't ever come to undermine the teachings of Maran. And everybody who argues with Maran is arguing with the Shekhinah. The Ramah here then proceeds to argue with Maran for the rest of his life. But in this letter to Maran, the Ramah is putting Maran on a tremendous pedestal. And I collected here for you many, many Ashkenazi rabbis. In source 20, uh, from Russia, the Gadomi Minsk, who talks about a Ruach HaKodesh that was on Maran when he wrote Shulchan Aruch. Uh, Tzadok HaKohen of Lublin, who was one of the famous Hasidic Rebbe's, uh, 21. He's familiar with Tzadok HaKohen of Lublin. He has a unique personality in the Hasidic world for the very simple reason that he wasn't raised Hasidic. He was raised uh, opponent to Hasidut. Already perhaps was a rabbi in the non-Hasidic movement and then converted to Hasidut, if I could borrow that word. And later on in life, he becomes a student of the Meshilach, who's the Ishbitzer Rebbe, also a student of Rev. Leibola Eger. Rev. Leibola Eger is none other than the Hasidic son of the anti-Hasidic Rabbi Akiva Eger. When Rabbi Akiva Eger's son becomes a Hasid, he sits Shiva on him. He, he disowns him from being part of his family. And he also writes here, Rev. Tzadokan of Lublin, that his book, Miyad Hashem Alav, this, this was Hashem's hand that was on Maran. That this book of Maran has been accepted as the book of Psak Halacha in everywhere in our generation. He talks about places where Maran writes the correct Halacha, even though Maran didn't mean to, because the Kadosh Bahu helped him write the Shulchan Aruch. In page 20, uh, source 22. I am certain that the spirit of HaKadosh who spoke in Maran, and everything was Hashem helping His hands. 
I'm not here to tell you whether Shulchan Aruch was written in Beruach HaKodesh or not, or what Ashkenazi rabbis understanding of Beruach HaKodesh is for Sefaradim. I simply am sharing with you the attitudes of Ashkenazi rabbis to Maran. In the seventh, year 1770, is born a rabbi Avraham David of Buchach, otherwise known as the Eshel Avraham of Buchach. He quotes the Ya'abits, Rabbi Yaakov ben Tzvi Emdin, who says about Maran in the next source, look at source 24, the following. Rabbi Yaakov Emdin is born in 1697, dies in 1776, born in Altuna. He was one of the main opponents of my wife's great-great-great-grandfather, Rabbi Yonatan Eipschitz, Yonatan Eipschitz again was suspected of being a Sabbathian and was persecuted for his whole life by Rabbi Yaakov Emdin. Uh, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, at least according to Jewish legend, Rabbi Yaakov Emdin and Rabbi Yonatan Eipschitz end up being buried right next to each other in the Jewish cemetery because there is no other grave for the other for the two of them to be buried right next to each other. But they definitely did not live right next to each other and they spend bitter years of their life uh, being persecuted. Uh, he also he also was one of the main opponents of the Ramchal, Rabbi, Yonatan, uh, Rabbi Yaakov uh, Ben Svi Emdin. He was the first to identify the Kabbalistic writings on the Talmud of the Chemdat Hayamim, who was attributed to some anonymous rabbi. He was the first to uh, point out that this book is, has Sabbathian influences. Even in the Kabbalistic circles of Iraq, this book is rejected as possibly being written by none other than uh, Nathan of Gaza, Natan HaAzati, who was the prophet. Every good false Mashiach, like Shabtai Tzvi, needs a prophet. So he had a prophet on payroll, and Natan HaAzati was the prophet who was on payroll. If I'm not mistaken, Natan Hazati studied in the yeshiva of Rabbi Yaakov Chagiz. If I'm not mistaken, there's a Sabbathian connection to Rabbi Yaakov Chagiz. By the way, you hear very often that uh, Tu Bishvat is coming up now. Tu Bishvat is an ancient Sephardic Kabbalistic custom. So let's just say ancient Sephardic are already a little bit contradictory, but ancient Sephardic Kabbalistic custom. So here you have a, a fascinating thing, which is the ancient Sephardic Kabbalists, let's say that Darizal was the king of them all, has no mention of Tu Bishvat as a holiday, not a holiday of fruit trees or anything else like that. Uh, you first find these writings in members of the Sabbathian movement. So Shabtai Tzvi's national holiday was Tu Bishvat uh, for a different class and a different time. And that's how it got to the Sephardic community, unfortunately, uh, through its Sabbathian roots. And you know, you ask yourself all kinds of questions. People say we can't celebrate Yom Ha'atzma'ut because it's not a Jewish holiday. I know, right? But Tu Bishvat, which comes from the Sabbatheans, somehow that's a Jewish holiday. Uh, to each their own, in their own place, in their own time. Rabbi Yaakov ben Tzvi Emdin says that We're not allowed to move from the rulings of the Shulchan Aruch. They're the established law for all the Jewish people. When he says Shulchan Aruch, like a classic Ashkenazi rabbi, he refers to Shulchan Aruch of Maran along with the notes of the Ramah. So not just Maran himself. And anybody who separates himself from Maran and the Ramah, separating himself from life itself. Shud uh, Batifaim, Rabbi Avram Zalman Margalios, Margaliot. He also writes, It's forbidden from us to deviate at all from the Shulchan Aruch. He was a Ukrainian rabbi. Um, he was the rabbi of Rabbi Chaim of Sanz. We're going to quote in just a moment, was the Hasidic Rebbe, the famous Halberstam family. The Khadam Sofer, Rabbi Moshe Sofer, who has a terrible reputation in the modern world, but I think is a very misunderstood Chacham. Not that I'm a student of his, but a misunderstood Chacham in general. He was born in Frankfurt, passed away in Hungary. He was the student of Rabbi Natan Adler and the Baal Hafla of Ibn Levi Horowitz. He writes that from heaven they helped Maran Shia Otot Tzadik Nitzal Mishkiah. They helped him to make sure he didn't make mistakes. HaKadosh Baruch helped him make sure he didn't make mistakes. To make sure that nothing mistaken came out of there. In source 27, 
You have members of the Betadin in Frankfurt, Germany. Is anyone here familiar with the get of, uh, I pronounce it, Kaleva, Kaliva, it's a Yiddish word. Are you familiar with the story of this get? They call it the Kaliver get or the Kaliver get. There was a get that happened in Eastern Europe that pretty much divided Eastern Europe. If, if Hasidut and, and Mitagdim was, this would have divided Europe even worse had it not ended the way that it ended. It ended tragically. Chaim uh, Yosef actually discusses at length this get in his book Anaf Etzavot, which is a commentary on Perkei Avot. Uh, today there's an English translation of that too, so if you want the whole story at length, it's there, but you can probably uh, Google it, uh, the Kaliver get. Essentially a get was given, some rabbis felt the get was given was not kosher. This widow, poor lady, not widow, she's, she's a divorcee, but she can't get divorced. The rabbis don't let her get married. The, the, literally, Eastern Europe is split into two. Rabbis start fighting with each other. Western Europe gets involved. Uh, here, these members of the Bet Adin of Frankfurt, they write the following words. Vehine bezmanazen, source 27. Nowadays, we see in the writings of rabbis from our generation, we see rabbis, they like to make up all kinds of new halakot, they like to read from books of the Chaonim. And they don't look at the writings of the Torah and the Shukhan Aruch. Who we are obligated not to deviate from their teachings right or left. Because their rulings have already been spread to the whole world. On the top of page 5, and they accepted their words, all the Jewish people, except the writers of the Maran and the Ramah, as if it was given to Moshe Rabbeinu and Har Sinai. And again, whenever you see Ke, it's not like, it's not Halakha and Moshe Sinai, but Ke, meaning very strongly, it's a strong language. Why should we even bother looking in the writings of the Rishonim if Maran and the Ramah already saw those words and dismissed them? And then he mentions that all of the rabbis that he studied with and that he taught with, none of them ever dared rule against Halakha against Maran Shukhan Aruch. Chaim of Sanz talks about those who rule against Shukhan Aruch. Chaim of Sands is in Poland, born in 1797, lives for 79 years, about. And he writes, Those who wish to go back and read the Rishonim and make their own decisions against what Maran ruled and about the Rishonim, it's heaven. It's emptiness and it's arrogance. And this brings us to a final story in Ashkenaz of Rabbi Nachman of Breslev. Rabbi Nachman of Breslev, the famous Lukutei uh, Moharan, but they call him Rabbi Nachman of Uman. Really, nobody knew him as Rabbi Nachman of Uman until, you know, the Uman guys hijacked Rabbi Nachman of Breslev and did whatever they did with him, but for a different class and a different time. It's not found in the primary source of Rabbi Nachman of Breslev. It's found in a secondary source of Hasidic stories. Uh, I, I don't know if I could use the word of authoritative Hasidic stories because I don't know how much can actually be authoritative in the realm of Hasidut, but let's say that it's a, it's a classic work of Hasidic stories called Siach Salfei Kodesh. Uh, Rabbi Nachman of Breslev was born in Mezhbuz, that's the town of the Baal Shem Tov, of his great-grandfather in 1772. Uh, passed away in Uman in 1810. He spends most of his life in Breslev. That's how he gets the name Rabbi Nachman of Breslev. And he's famously the great-grandson of the Baal Shem Tov. His mother was a granddaughter of the Baal Shem Tov who studied a certain amount of Torah from her mother who studied from the Baal Shem Tov. A very unique family. Family, a very unique personality, not within the scope of today's shiur. But they mentioned the following story. When one of Anash asked Rabbeinu, what is Anash? Do you know this acronym, Anash? 
Baruch Hashem, we Sephardim don't use this so much, but maybe today they use it. I don't know, I don't know what Sephardim do today. You know what Anash means? Anshei Shlomenu. You know what Anshei means? The people of our peace. Yeah, the Hasidim are, you know, I, I never know if the Hasidim are those who are being persecuted or they're persecuted and they're persecuting and therefore they were, I'm not sure exactly what happened with the Hasidim, but nonetheless, the Hasidim themselves call their, their friends Anshei Shlomenu, Anash. And people who are not Anash are those on the outside. So one of the breast of her is asked Rabbeinu, Rabbi Nachman the breast Shifaresh lo davar besefer l'kutei moran. That he should explain to him something he wrote in the l'kutei moran. Lo anahu Rabbeinu klum. And Rabbi Nachman didn't answer him. Rak amar he told him the following thing. And it's in Yiddish, but I got a Hebrew translation. So if my wife was reading to us, she would read to you in Yiddish, I'm reading to you in Hebrew. Yechol hincha lekamet atzifri kefir tzoncha. You can bend and fold and twist my book however you want. Meaning, you can explain anything you want in my writings. I let. You have the freedom to interpret Likuteh Moran differently than I did. But don't you dare deviate one halakha from that which is written in Shulchan Aruch. Meaning, when it comes to Shulchan Aruch, stop playing games. Chazidut, you can play games all you want. But in halakha, don't play games. It's unique to the breast of movement. And obviously they have their own challenges that when other Hasidim were rapidly abandoning norms of halakha, like praying on time, or praying in minyanim, or all kinds of things that were going on, somersaults and batei knesset, whatever things were happening there, Rabbi Nachman, the breast of Hasidim, are those who still pray and netzach because that's what halakha requires from them. And there are those who do certain, many, I don't want to sit now on breast of other Hasidim, but who tried as much as possible, at least in the early generations, to remain loyal to normative teachings of halakha, despite the spirit of chasidut that was prevalent at the time. So we did today the contemporaries of Maran. We did a discussion, short discussion about Chachamei Ashkenaz and Maran. I would like to ask, I know what time it is right now, but if you could give me a little bit more time to do together Maran in Yemen. And if anybody has to go at any point in time, I understand that this class is being recorded. We'll upload a recording for you. But if it's okay with you, and if you give me permission, I would like to finish today's source sheet, uh, if it's not possible. Yeah? Toda There is nothing better than reading something in its original source. So all of the sources mentioned here, the comments mentioned here, uh, this entire section I took directly out of an article of Rabbi Ratzon Arusi, whose article I have right here. It's called, Manhiguto Aruchanich and Maharitz. The spiritual leadership of the Maharitz, Rabbi Chesalach, who was one of the giants of Yemen. And he talks much about uh, stances on halakha versus compromising in halakha. This article is gold. This article is not just gold, but it changed so much of the way that I view halakha in general, Maran in particular. Uh, I don't agree. Uh, my rabbi doesn't agree necessarily with everything inside of these teachings here, but the, the, the context in which should live and be well. He's the chief rabbi of Kiyat Ono, was born in Sana in Yemen, and is now a rabbi in, in Israel. Hashem should give him a long life, a healthy life. Uh, he did a terrific job here, and I selected some of the more key parts that I felt were in his essay. Every good essay has footnotes, and I recommend that if you can get your hands on this essay, I'm happy to send it out to the group afterwards. To, if you're able to understand Hebrew well, to go through his footnotes, to read his sources, to learn this essay, because it's very important. Let's read. Source 30. גדול האישים התורניים והמנהיג הבולט ביותר של יהדות המן במאה ה-18 היה מהריץ. מורנו הרב יחי צלח. רביחי צלח was the most prominent uh, sticking out פוסק of Yemen 
in the 1800s, 18th century, 1700s, 1800s. Who shimesh meshach bin v'sheva shanim kedayani was the Dayan for 47 years, 35 years as the head of the Betadin in the Betadin of Sana, which is the main Jewish capital of Yemen, at least in that part of Yemen. Manhiguto atoranit amda b'merkaz ma'avak shri yadut elman l'shimur morashta ruchanit ayukhudit. And the Maharit essentially dedicates his life to maintaining, to preserving the authentic Yemenite tradition. Shaita bikara Talmudit Rambamit, which in its roots is Talmudic and Rambamist, if we could use those words. I know those are modern words, but let's use them anyways. The Talmudic Rambamist community. with in the face of increased uh, infiltration of a unique breed of Judaism, which he calls Torah Eretz Israel, the Torah of the land of Israel, or let's even, in the rest of his essay, he calls it, particular, Torah Tzfat, the Torah of Tzfat. And this includes the Shulchan Aruch of Maran, as well as the Kabbalistic teachings of the Arizal, who begin to infiltrate all the different communities around the world, Ashkenaz and Sevaran, and ultimately come to Yemen as well, and cause tremendous havoc in the Yemenite Jewish community. Uh, if you wish to list, learn more about this particular topic, I have a shiur on YouTube, I think it's called Halachic Colonialism, uh, about Maharitz's war against those who tried to bring the Sefirata Omer mourning customs into Yemen. You know, there are later Kabbalistic influences that uh, Maran therefore rules this way to mourn during Sefirata Omer, and when those things were being introduced uh, into our uh, Yemenite Jewish community, there was staunch opposition to that, especially in the manner. It was done in a very violent manner, not in a normative Halachic manner. It was not a conversation. It was forced on people. I think in general... Uh, the Chachamim who oppose things could always live with others who believe differently, worship differently. You know, we mentioned about the Rosh and the Rambam and the students of the pe- those camps that were in the Spain at the time, Andalusia and Catalonia. I'm saying as my own observation that I don't know if the students of the Rambam would have minded so much that there were other Jews aside from them in the world. What they minded was the opposition, not regular opposition, but violent opposition towards them. It's a persecution of them in the name of something which is great and which is holy. And I think that here you find in Yemen a very similar theme that happens, and that's what this article is about. And he mentions here in the second paragraph all about the Torah Eretz Israel of Tzfat, the books of uh, Rabbi Yosef Karo. Look in the bold in the second paragraph. Sifrei Alakha shel Rabbi Yosef Karo Bet Yosef Shuchan Aruch Dachakut Mishnah Torah Rambam V'sever Halachot Narosh the books of Maran essentially uprooted and replaced the books of the Rambam and the Rosh, which were prevalent in Yemen at the time. Again, Abutai, we're talking about a, a Rambam stronghold, but that the books that were there before Maran, at least according to Rabbi Ratzon Arusi, are the Rambam and the Rosh. And just like the books of the Arizal, those Kabbalistic works started influencing Yemen as well. Now I have to just disclose my bias. I come from a Yemenite family. My father's side is Yemenite. Uh, there's Baladi Yemenites and Shami Yemenites. And if, if I would have to be pressed up against the wall, let's say that the Baladis are most likely the original Yemenites. The Shamim are those who accepted the influence of Tzfat into their lives. And therefore, even though in my grandfather's home they read Torah like Yemenites and many minhagim and halachot like Yemenites, essentially when it comes to halakha, the halakha was the Shulchan Aruch alongside the Rambam, as well as the Sidur is most resembles a Sephardic Sidur that you may be familiar with as opposed to the original uh, Yemenite Sidurim. And 
if you watch my first Rambam class on our Mishneh Torah podcast, we discuss much about Rav Kapach and the whole, the grandfather, Allah B'Shalom, and his whole battle to try to restore Rambam Judaism back to Yemen many years after this episode that we're dealing with right now. In Ashkenaz, you have another Chacham named the Ramah who's also doing his best to push back against influences, listen very carefully, influences of Maran into Europe at the time. This happens, left paragraph on page 5, this happens in Yemen as well. Torah Mitzvat, teachings of Tzvat. Come already in the 16th century to uh, Yemen. And started penetrating the spiritual realm of Yemen. But it didn't threaten yet the very existence of Yemenite spiritual life. This happened slowly. And he mentions that even from the rabbis, who were famous for restoring Yemenite customs, they themselves had already grown up. Then many of the Yemenite Chachamim who later in life stood up for the original traditions of Yemen, in their youth, they had already been raised in the Yemenite uh, traditions of Tzfat, meaning they were already raised as Tzfat-influenced Jews in Yemen, and only later in their life did they come to restore the original uh, Yemenite uh, traditions back to their rightful place. He mentions here on page 6 that the Ramah really got a head start. The Ramah, already in Maran's lifetime, is fighting and preserving Ashkenazi customs. That for the Yemenite Jews, because they didn't take this threat seriously, it took them a few hundred years to get their act together. And because of that, by the time the Maharits comes around, Yemenite Jewry is already deeply influenced by the Torah of Tzfat, whether it be the Halachot of Maran, or it be the Kabbalah of the Rizal and the likes of that camp. He said, it could have been this would have never happened had the Yemenite rabbis woken up as early as Ashkenazi rabbis did. Now this is something interesting, because very often you find that things that Ashkenazi Jews struggled with many centuries prior, Sephardic Jews are only hit with that illness later on in life. And had they taken, I don't know if all lessons you should have taken, but here it says, we'll see that they were left vulnerable. And so there are three famous people that were leading this movement. One of them is the Maharitz. He said, but between those three, the Maharitz was the most successful. And the reason why the Ritz was most successful, there was a famous uh, uh, rabbi, Rabbi Yaakov Sapir, who was traveling through Yemen in this time period. And he says about the Maharitz that he was accepted as the ultimate ruler of Halakha in Yemen, just like Maran and the Ramah were accepted in their respective communities, the Maharitz had that level of prominence. Why, says Rabbi Yaakov Because of his spiritual leadership. The way in which the Maharits combated external influences in Yemen is precisely what made him rise to the top. And this will shed a whole new light for us on Maran and his, uh, his understanding of Halakha and what he did for the Sephardim as well. He says here, He will forever be remembered in the history of Yemen, not as a leader of opposition, but rather as the leader who left his spiritual imprint. The imprint of one who knew how to preserve that which was old and accept and, and uh, receive that which was new. And this, I think, is the greatest part of the Maharitz's personality. It's what frustrates others with the Maharitz. 
But for Rabbi Raton Arusi, he correctly identifies the Maharitza's attitude of peace, of compromise, that's a word we're going to hear now, of compromise is precisely what led him to the top. Had he been militant, like some of his predecessors or his colleagues, he would have never reached the level of popularity that he reached in Yemen. He mentions how the Ramah himself, the Ramah himself deviates from his own rabbis. Sorry, the Ramah's rabbis rejected Shulchan Aruch entirely. The Ramah realizes it's too late to reject Shulchan Aruch. So what does he do? The Ramah decides to write a commentary on Shulchan Aruch. To let the Shulchan Aruch infiltrate, but not without Ashkenazim having the final say. And the truth is that if you look at the Shulchan Aruch that any of you probably have in your homes, you'll see one Sephardic Shulchan Aruch, notes of the Ramah, 300 commentaries all around, maybe half of a commentary which is Sephardic. So essentially Ashkenazim didn't get the final word of the Shulchan Aruch, they got the final 300 words of the Shulchan Aruch. They printed recently, I mean, a few, 10 years back, they were printing a Sephardic Shulchan Aruch, a Shulchan Aruch with Sephardic commentaries. Like every good Sephardic project, they got two or three volumes in, then ran out of funding, and you can never find the people who printed the first three volumes in the first place. Uh, one thing we have to learn from Ashkenazim is how to do things right, I will tell you that much. And says the Biraton Arusi that Maharitz does the same thing that Ramad does to his rabbis. Maharitz, instead of opposing the Shulchan Aruch like others tried, and instead of accepting the Shulchan Aruch, like others, Rabbi David, the author of the Shtile Zetim, it's a beautiful commentary in Shulchan Aruch, written in Yemen. So there are three camps in Yemen. There's going to be the opponents of Shulchan Aruch, the Chassidei HaShulchan Aruch, as Rabbi Yerson Aruzi calls them, the followers of Shulchan Aruch, led by Shtile Zetim, by Rabbi David Mashriki, and forgive me if I'm not pronouncing the last name properly. And you ultimately have the middle ground, which is the Maharitz. And he deviates from all of those paths. And he thinks the following, look at the last, Sentence on page six in the right column. That on his opinion, that each one of them, Maran and the Rama, ruled halachot according to the customs of their forefathers. And therefore, he, as a Yemenite Jew, also has the right to rule halachot according to his forefathers. So when he sees Maran preserving Sephardic halacha in the face of Ashkenazi infiltration. And he sees the Ramah preserving Ashkenazi halakha in the face of Sephardic infiltration. He says the Maharit is the one preserving Yemenite halakha in the face of both Sephardic and Ashkenazi infiltration. But all of them have a unique common denominator. And that is that each of them realized that there were battles they were going to win and battles they were going to lose. Things that had already become deeply rooted in the Jewish community and things that didn't. Things that were more problematic and needed fighting against and things that were less problematic and didn't necessarily need fighting against. And the Maharit chose his battles wisely. Like every general knows, you choose certain battles to win and you strategically lose other battles. And the reason? Because your goal is to win the war. It's not to win every battle. Your goal is to win the war. And Rabbi Ratzon Arusi suggests that the Maharitz actually imitates none other than Maran. Look here in the top left. He says that essentially, just like the Maharitz copies the Ramah in preserving Ashkenazi customs, preserving Yemenite customs, he also emulates Maran. How so? By compromise. Maharitz sat down with all of the Halakhot and said, listen, some things we're going to be able to change. Some things we won't be able to change. Some things we don't care if they change or not. Some things are very important for us. And Maharitz begins to play this game of fighting a war. And winning that war he did in the strategy of Maran. How does Maran become the preeminent posek of Sfarad? 
He does that by giving in in certain places. He does that, which makes some of us upset. How does he rule like Rambam and, and like the Rosh instead? How does he displace Sephardim with Ashkenazi Piskei Halacha or Minhagim? Because it was a way of compromise. And that's why Maran, unlike others who tried, ultimately rose to the top. That's why the Ramah, unlike other rabbis who tried, ultimately rose to the top. Says the Rusi, this is the same thing that happens with Rabbi Chesalach in Yemen as well. In source 32. This whole attitude of compromising on halachic stances is, is, Rabbi Yosef Karo Maran is notorious for this. That's why the Marshal, Rabbi Shlomo Luria, decides to just ignore the writings of Maran. Maran gives tremendous importance to minhagim. He even refrains from attacking minhagim that we know Maran to believe are incorrect. A classic case of this, a bracha on washing your hands. In my home, in our Bet Midrash, we make a bracha before we wash our hands for bread. Like the Rambam, like the Talmud, like everywhere else. Except Maran writes that you should make a bracha before you wash your hands for bread. And yet he writes of minhagim, but there's a custom not to do that. Maran, why are you recording a custom that goes against your halachic stance? Why? Maran won this war by including things he didn't necessarily agree with. Because his goal, remember, was not to win every battle. But his goal was to win the war. He says the Maharits did the same thing. Essentially, the Maharits and his leadership of Yemen does not reject the Shulchan Aruch. In fact, he doesn't even discourage the study of Shulchan Aruch. He encourages the study of the Rambam and the Shulchan Aruch together, both in Yeshivot and by the regular people. There are some Nuschaot, which he returns back to the original versions, some Nuschaot infiltrated by Tzfat, which he leaves, and really this makes people upset. Because some people don't know why Maharitz agrees with things here, disagrees with things there. The Maharitz comes off as highly inconsistent. When I landed in London, uh, it's exactly a year ago, Kimat, I was in Sina's car, and Sina and I were talking. It's a long drive from the airport to, to the Berakneset. I was by Rabbi Kada, Hashem should bless him, live him, give him a long life. Um, in that car ride, we were discussing Rambam and Shulchan Aruch. You know what's beautiful about the Rambam? Everything. Everything's beautiful about the Rambam. But one thing you see in Mishneh Torah is consistency, clarity, everything. You know when the Rambam writes one thing here, he's going to write the same thing somewhere else. Maran Shulchan Aruch? I'm telling you this is a Jew who, who observes Halakha according to Maran. Sometimes it's chaotic. Maran over here is Sephardic, over there he's German, over here he's French, over here he's Portuguese, every time there's something else. Sometimes minhagim are important, sometimes halachot are important, sometimes kabbalah is brought in. Maran, the whole system is complicated to understand. It's not clear. And it makes people upset in Maran. Says Rabbi Ratzon Arusi that this frustration is actually what makes Maran successful. He says the Maharitz on top of page 7 in bold. The Ma'arit says it's not correct, it's also not proper, it won't be successful. Practically, if you want to change people's minds, you cannot change their minds overnight. You cannot break people, you can't do shvirat akelim. It's interesting, that's a Kabbalistic concept. You cannot break utensils, you can't just throw out everything. You have to come slowly, through persuasion, 
בדברים המוסכמים ובדברים שטרם התפשטו לגמרי, you can attack the things that are less popular, but things that are popular, you can't undermine popularity in the eyes of the masses. It says 34, לפי זה נבין את שיטת המעריץ, and now you can finally understand the way of the מעריץ שרבים נבוכו בה. The many people look in the מעריץ say you're inconsistent. You remind us of מרן. Says רבי רצון הרוסי, it's exactly right. מעריץ reminds you of מרן because he's copying מרן. The same way that Ramah sometimes agrees with Maran and sometimes says, this is an Ashkenazi custom, don't you dare violate it. Why? Ramah, if he's the prince of God, if you're not allowed to argue with Maran, so why on earth are you arguing with Maran here, but you didn't argue with Maran over there? Because the Ramah says certain things are worth fighting and certain things are not worth fighting. And look in this bold paragraph on page 7. It's impossible to say that the Maritz considered Maran to be the rabbi of Yemenite Jewry. Because in that case, why would he have fought with the Shulchan Aruch loyalists? Like his rabbi and colleague, Rabbi David of the Shnezitim. In fact, Rabbi David, look at the bottom source. The Yemenite Shulchan Aruch loyalists would say, we don't care about anything written before Shulchan Aruch. Shulchan Aruch is the only book we have. In fact, this is so extreme. The Shtile Zetim, his commentary on Shulchan Aruch, ignores entirely anything that the Ramah wrote. Why? Because he views the Ramah as undermining the unity of the Jewish people by quoting Ashkenazi customs. His attitude is, if I have to give up Yemenite customs for Maran, you Ashkenazim better have to give up Yemenite cust- your Ashkenazi customs for Maran as well. And that's why in his uh, his, his uh, zeal to observe the Shulchan Aruch, he pretty much ignores everything that the Ramah writes. So here you have to deal with a complex personality. And that is that in his principle, Ma'arit accepts that the Rambam is the rabbi of Yemen. But that you cannot do anything about the fact that Maran and the Arizal and all these other influence had already infiltrated Yemen many, many years before. And that they already rooted themselves in Yemen. The people already followed them. People had an affinity to these Minhagim. I have here a journey of one of these rabbis who was going through the, the Kapach family's uh, uh, one of the journeys, Rabbi Saadia, he, he traveled through of Kapach's family's events and was criticizing them for doing all kinds of things the way Yemenites originally did them, and not like the Shulchan Aruch, because customs are so important. How are you going to tell us to stop doing things we've done for 100 years, 200 years? You just have to meet a regular Jew today to understand how deeply uh, entrenched in them is the way they do things. Rabbi Maritz was up against the well. So even though he had a principled stance, his practical stance was one of compromise. On the left side of page 7, and we're almost done for today. Maritz made a calculated decision to, be comprom- to have a compromising stance to save whatever he could save. Maran himself, just like he also didn't leave all of the things in Spain as they were. He also included Ashkenazi customs in his book. Which had already become Sephardic customs. And that's why all of those sources we mentioned to you earlier. Who are the pillars of Sephardic? The Rambam and the Rosh. When you know those things are mutually exclusive. But Maran has to deal with a mess of a community who has a principled stance like the Rambam, but a practical approach of many Ashkenazi customs which have infiltrated. 
כי מנהיגים כמו מרן והמעריץ יודעים מראש שאין הם הולכים להציע משנה אחידה בהגיונה, שיטתית ועקבית. רבייז כמו מרן, וכמו המעריץ יודעים, אלא לפי מה שנראה ביניהם ראשה כרובה, או רובה ככולה של שיטה. אבל הם יכולים לנסות להתחיל את ההתחלה שהם יכולים לעשות את זה בכל מקום. ותו לא מידי, לכן שיטה זו של מעריץ, זו האטיטוד של המעריץ, כמו כל שיטת פשרה שיש בה אמת ושלום, השלום מושג בה על חשבון משהו מן האמת. It's a very painful sentence to read. You should know, Hara Peretz doesn't agree with this sentiment entirely. Hara Peretz's attitude is that when Maran rules like the Rosh, most likely he agrees that the Rosh is correct. That he doesn't want to accept that uh, Rosh, uh, will, uh, Maran will rule something against what he believes to be correct. Uh, but th- that's for a different shiur, in a different place, in a different time. But ultimately, you have a choice between uniting the Jewish people or being right. And like Maran, like the Ramah, the Maharits in his own place in Yemen decided to do the same thing. Whatever he can preserve from original Yemenite Jewry, he will. Whatever Maran can preserve from original Sephardic Jewry, he will. Whatever the Ramah can preserve from original Ashkenazi Jewry, he will. But whatever has already changed, whatever the people are already so obsessed with, he's not going to fight that battle because then he'll lose the war. If Maran wants to be the Posek of the Sephardim, he has to give in. If the Ramah wants to be the Posek of the Ashkenazim, he has to give in. If Maharitz wants to be the Posek of the Yemenites, he has to find a way to bring all the Yemenites behind him. And on the last page here, on page 8, on the top right, reality has taught us that really, as much as we love principled stances, it's those who are able to compromise that ultimately were ever successful in the Jewish community, in ruling, leading the Jewish community. Why? For which reason? Why should those who compromise be the leaders? Because it's the most practical stance to have. It may not be the most correct stance to have, but it's the most practical stance to have. And all of those, even in our generation, who are principled, they're only going to do one thing, one way. Those stances ultimately, much to their frustration, always get pushed off ultimately. They may have been more correct. but they were not most practical. And he mentions again the rabbis of the Ramah in those battles. And let me tell you then at the conclusion, he says, you have an interesting situation, the same with the teachers of Maritz. It was accepted because of his balanced attitude and his compromise. ובדרך כלל הגישה המעשית היא זו שנעשית לשיטה הלכתית. The most practical approach to halakha, the most realistic one, is always the one that becomes entrenched. The problem is, משנה כזו אשר לא תמיד היא שיטתית ועקבית, יש בה לפעמים סתירות פנימיות, that ultimately in a book like שולחן ערוך, in writings like the Maharitz, in writings like the Ramah, because those books are not consistent, you always have problems with them. One thing in one area argues with another area. An example that he mentions here, and cannot get into it today, is about making a blessing over washing your hands at the Pesach Seder. Look at this paragraph. In one situation, Sephardim do one way, and so what's going to happen? The Maran is going to come and scream at you for making a blessing in vain. And if you do the other way, the Rambam is going to come scream at you for making a blessing in vain. But this happens all the time and says the Biraton Arusi, even though the compromisers are those who won, it always leaves a little bit of a bad taste in our mouth. 
בכל זאת, nonetheless, in the last paragraph, יש עיתים, there are times, שגדול כוחו של המנהיג הרוחני המפשר בפסיקת הנחה והמנהג, that the leader, the spiritual leader who knows how to compromise between stances of הלכה ומנהג, בכך שהוא מביא את השלום למחנה, is he brings the peace in the camp, and he brings his people as close as he possibly can to the truth. It's ultimately this leader who is not militant, who is not principled, who brings Jews together, who is the one who is successful and leaves his spiritual imprint on the Jewish people. And the final quote that I brought to you on page 8 is one of Rabbi Yosef ben Yitzchak Sambari. It's a fascinating rabbi. It's quoted by the Nahar Mitzrayim, Rabbi Rufel Aaron ben Shimon in Egypt. Uh, the Chida praises him. He was a historian, an Egyptian Jewish historian. He was a big Tamikram also, who wrote a tremendous work on history. We only have half of it. Uh, I think the Ben Svi Institute printed half of it. Ahavat uh, Shalom later uh, printed half of it also. Uh, the history from the creation of the world until the end of the Talmud, we don't have. That book has been lost to us. We only have the table of contents of it. Uh, which means we lost a tremendous amount. But his history from the Savoraim until his generation is there. And he writes the following words about Maran. Harav Mahari Karo. Maran passed away. We all know about this angel that spoke to Maran and whether or not that's accurate or not, we've discussed in a different place. And they promised him, this angel, that the Rambam, along with Rabbi Yaakov, the son of the Rosh, they were so happy that he understood them properly. So obviously, again here, you're talking about somebody who's saying Maran was able to understand both the Rambam and the Rosh, and that both of them were happy with him. They told him, These are three names that always don't belong in the same sentence. They're all coming out to greet him. With three groups of ministering angels. He merited this portion and may his soul be rest in peace. I think it's a fascinating thought. That in the 1600s, a Chacham can say, you know, Maran, Maran, you were a little bit different than everybody else. You didn't have a stance. But you managed to bring peace between the Rambam and the Ramban and the Balaturim and the Rosh, and all of them came to greet you in Ganedin. Maran is a man of compromise. Before I end today's shiur, I want to make it very clear. Something that I didn't properly do last time. Many of us are frustrated at the compromises that Maran made. Some of you wrote me questions. What about Maran who says that if you follow the Rambam, it's okay? Of course Maran would tell you such a thing. Maran knows what is the stance of the Savaradi. But Maran had a greater mission. And the mission was to stop the tohu vavohu, to stop the chaos that is currently the Jewish community. If it was that way in the 1400s, you can imagine what it looks like today. I spoke with Rabbi Peretz two nights ago, and he said, you know, Haman was right. So what was right about Haman? He said, we are a scattered and dispersed nation. We don't agree. We don't agree on anything. I said, Rabbi Peretz, we're making Haman proud because we've now proved him to be even more correct than he was then. If that was true by Haman, how much more so now? If only Sepharadim followed Maran and the Yemenites followed Ramam, Ashkenazim followed the Ramam, we would be quiet. There would only be three kinds of Jews. But look at Am Yisrael today. When I push for kibanu alenu harot maran, this is not a principled stance. This is a stance of we must unite around something. And in my opinion, the opinion of the rabbis who taught me, 
the book that represents the most Jews possible is the Shulchan Aruch, with the notes of the Rama. It is the only book that you can convince Sephardim and Ashkenazim to look at and study from. Does a rabbi have the ability to argue with Maran? Can an Ashkenazi, Chacham, rule differently than the Rama? That's next week's Shi'un. All of the places in which Sephardic rabbis, as much as they accepted the rulings of Maran, still reserved the right to disagree. Because that doesn't undermine who Maran was. Maran? Maran was the great unifier. Maran was the Chacham who knew exactly what needed to be done to make sure that after the Spanish expulsion, Sephardic Jewry didn't disappear. And as much as you can have first world problems, sitting on a comfy chair wherever you are in the world, reading books about the Rambam and about Maran and about those who attack the Rambam and, the, and put Maran into whichever category you want, love Kabbalah and hate the Kabbalah, you didn't have to do what Maran did. You didn't have to stand in the face of a Sephardic community that was deteriorating rapidly and save them single-handedly, which Maran did. And Maran did, as Rabbi Ratzon Arusi said, because of his ability to compromise, to say which things are truly important to us and which things are not. I gave a shiur once about Rabbi Uziyah. This is the calling of the Jewish people in the future. Adopting a book that's 500 years old is going to have its own challenges. Am Yisrael must reach a place. I don't fool myself to think it's going to happen, maybe not even in my lifetime. But to fix the chaos of the Jewish people today, Am Yisrael has to create a place in which different Jewish minds are able to sit together and sit for us again and teach us halachot again and sift through opinions and stances and understandings of halakha and create for us what Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai said was going to happen, that we won't find one halakha and one mishnah in the same place that halakha will become chaotic. Our chachamim would be able, if they would only sit together, to make a Torah for the Jewish people that isn't chaotic. Even Maran would say, please, if you can get the Jewish people to follow halakha properly, I'm giving you my chair. But unfortunately, the one thing we've never been able to do is dialogue. A Sanhedrin, a Sanhedrin is a dream so far away. You can't even get Chachamim to sit at the same table for a bar mitzvah, for a wedding ceremony. How are you going to get a Tamil Chachamim to sit together and discuss which minhagim of theirs they're supposed to give up, which halachic stance of theirs they're going to give in to the other side to make Am Yisrael united? But I believe, and I pray every single day, that Am Yisrael, when it understands and appreciates the principles that we have, will figure out a practical solution. A practical solution that will never be perfect. But the one thing that is perfect is Shalom. The name of HaKadosh Baruch Hu is Shalom. And ultimately the stamp of HaKadosh Baruch Hu is Emet, is truth. If we can create the peace, I am certain that just like Maran in his time, and the Rama in his time, and the Maharits in his time, in our generation we have the opportunity to create a Shalom compromise in which HaKadosh Baruch Hu will be able to stamp onto it his final seal of Emet, Bezad Hashem, we shall live to see that day. God willing.